This is about the environmental threats that each and every one of us face. This is about how we treat other people and how we lift them up. What this is about is making sure that we have the most efficient way possible to pay for health care for everyone in this country. So ultimately, this is about saving lives. That's what we know about safe injection sites. And this is about more than just our economy. I see. This is about bringing good jobs back for the middle class of America. This is about jobs. I want to get America's economy going again. Those were all clips from televised debates among U.S. political candidates. What's this about? Well, it's about what I say it's about. We live in a messy world full of complicated issues, so complicated that we can think about them all in different ways. And how we think about them shapes our opinions on them. As a recent example, take the screaming match that emerged around COVID lockdowns. If we run with the idea that the decision comes down to protecting public health, then lockdowns are a no-brainer. If instead we think that the health of our economy is ultimately what's at stake, well, then lockdowns don't seem so great. I I live in Ohio, and we just voted on an issue that a lot of major news outlets were covering. It was an initiative to enshrine reproductive rights in the state's constitution. And lawns were covered in signage, ads played on TV, debates raged on social media. And just like pretty much every debate about abortion, they all positioned the issue strategically. It's about body autonomy. It's about maternal choice. It's about the sanctity of life. It's about public health. Even without making new arguments, these messages tried to tip the scales by playing up the perspective that made their position seem like the clearer conclusion. This is going to seem like a tangent, but I promise I know what I'm doing. So I've always been interested in photography, playing with light and shadow, capturing a moment in time. And whether it's the disposable cameras I loved as a kid or the bulky SLRs I used in my high school photography class or the smartphone camera taking the 30th picture of my cat for the day, there's a clear moment when you switch from taking in the entire world around you with all of your senses And the moment you realize that your camera is only going to capture some of it, you've got a decision to make. What do you include in the frame and what do you leave out? Who do you focus on? The result is a photo that tells the story that you want to share. And in a camera, focusing and framing are literal physical things you have to do. But it's no surprise that those same words have been used to understand political persuasion. Ah, there it is. (laughs) In an abortion debate, what's in focus? How have you framed the issue? These things matter. You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how we talk about them. I'm Andy Luttrell, and this week I'm looking forward to sharing my conversation with political scientist Jamie Druckmann. He's a professor at Northwestern University and has laid the groundwork for so much of what we know about how political persuasion works, including a lot of influential work on how communicators frame an issue. This show is such a delight for me. (laughs) I've read so much of Jamie's work in the past, and it's just so great to have an excuse to meet the guy behind it all and put a voice to the work. We talk about Jamie's interest in political communication, what framing is and how it works, and a recent academic paper he wrote that tries to wrangle the vast array of research and persuasion into a finite set of essential elements. 
So let's jump right in to my conversation with Jamie Dreckman. It was funny. So in doing some of the background research for this, I was looking at your CV and looking at like the first couple papers that come out. And it's funny that it's like, oh, yeah, there he is. It's like a framing paper and a paper on uh, preferences. It's like, yeah, right out of the gate, you were like ready to go with the stuff that was going to define your work from there. So so I'm curious, like if you were to um, kind of consolidate all the million things that you do into like a l- overview of how you approach political science, how, how would you describe it? Yeah, it's a really great question. So I actually, my my initial interest in political science was in coalition formation um, and how coalitions form in the context of parliamentary democracies. And so in political science, the discipline is kind of awkwardly organized around four areas on American politics and comparative politics and international relations and political philosophy. And I, I thought I was going to be in comparative politics um, studying that topic. And I, I quickly learned in graduate school that my interest um, wasn't very much in kind of how groups came together to form coalitions, but not necessarily within the institutional context of parliamentary democracies. While that was an interesting context to me, the, the rest of kind of the institutional comparisons and nuances of, of comparative politics didn't fascinate me quite as much as the dynamics of how different groups were coming together. And so... That led me to, to kind of switch gears somewhat kind of midway through graduate school and turn to really, I guess, in essence, the study of intergroup relations in, in political settings, um, which I, I, I think really is, is, to me, the essence of what politics is about, because you basically have a finite set of resources and there are you know different individuals and then different groups that are divided by various cleavages that are competing over the distribution of those resources and, you know, to, to get control over those resources or to win, win their way, um, they need to co-ally with others in one way or another. And so that's kind of what I think is crucial to politics. So it involves a lot of collective action and coordination and, and kind of, um, persuasion. And so that got me interested in how do people form preferences and how do people go about changing the preferences that other people have. And, um, you know, with a, with attention to a political context, which I, I think does introduce some unique dynamics, um, although it is a, it's a question that I, I, I think I've certainly struggled with um, for more than 20 years, um, and, and, and I think others might too, is insofar as kind of what are the unique elements of political contexts that make it distinctive from other contexts where people study the same phenomena, um, right? Because we have, you know, psychologists are, are studying preference formation and, and persuasion, obviously, across various contexts. Um, communication scholars are studying these things. Sociologists are studying these things. So kind of what is the unique aspects of politics that kind of make it, like that, that give political scientists some kind of comparative advantage to understand that that sense of things. And, it, and it, I'm so not totally clear on, on what that is. Um, so it's, a, it's kind of an interesting tension, I think, for those of us who might define ourselves as political psychologists and what, what exactly that means. Um, and I, I think that's been an ongoing dialogue, you know, going back um, into the 50s and 60s when um, psychologists were started doing political science type things. Because um, it is interesting in political science, the, the foundational works in 
um, persuasion and political communication and public opinion, you know, they're all the same works as in the other social sciences. And they were largely all done by people whose disciplines of origins were not political science. So it's, you know, mostly sociologists or, or um, social psychologists. And so, you know, it's, I think it's an it's a interesting question. Um, it's funny, too, that as you describe it, it sort of makes me realize that persuasion from the perspective of politics is very instrumental, right? Like there's a, there's, it's purposeful. <laughs> Whereas right. as a psychologist, I, I don't always think about it that way. It's just like, oh, like we exchange ideas and we communicate. And sometimes I wish you saw the world the way I saw it. And so I'm going to talk to you about it. Whereas political communication is like very strategic, right? Like there's, there's a tension there <laughs> that like, I need you to buy this. Right. Yes. And I think, I'm, I mean, so when I, when I do try to address that question, um, you know, the two things that pop out to me is, is one is the strategic aspect of that and kind of trying to understand the motivations of the, the speaker in a persuasive setting and, and kind of what, what exactly is the speaker trying to obtain, um, which is, you know, often advocacy for a particular position and trying to get people onto their side. Um, you know, other times it might be social expression um, in, in, diff in different contexts and kind of how do those incentives affect the way they go about trying to sway people. Um, and then just the competitive nature of persuasion, um, right? A lot of the, the classic studies um, of, of communication and, and persuasion, you know, didn't really and didn't need to, given the, the, the interests of that work, account for the fact that there's competition over people's support. Um, and so, you know, even in a marketing setting, you know, marketers have to think about the competing products, but, it, you know, it, it, at the very moment when they're trying to win somebody over, you know, I don't know if they think about is the other product sitting right next to their product or, or not. But in politics, um, the other side is kind of always sitting right there um, competing. And so I think that competitive element um, and then also just the, the kind of institutional context that helps shape what the groups look like um, is also, an, an, you know, I guess a third aspect that makes politics unique. So maybe those three aspects of things, again, being the strategic nature of the communicators, the competitive nature of the that the receivers um, face when getting the communication, and then the fact that you have political institutions that are carving out different groups um, that are competing with one another, right? So you, you know, electoral systems being the most obvious. Um, so you end up with a set of political parties um, that look quite different than, than they might look under a different set of electoral institutions. I, w I wonder if it would be helpful for folks who maybe are not already checked into political communication or sure, anything like that to, yeah. to even just give some examples of like what political messaging is like, what are examples of political messaging through what channels? How are these things coming down? Like, you know, we talk abstractly about it, <laughs> but in the world, what, what sure. am I looking at where I go? Oh, that's what they're talking about. Yeah. I, I mean, I think so. You know, there's an enormous amount invested in campaign messaging and, and particularly when candidates are running for office or when um, there's an initiative on the ballot and, and different groups are putting out um, campaigns to, for one position or another, you know, such as in the, the various states that had a abortion referenda um, in the last year. Um, and, you know, they're trying to craft messages um, and often those messages involve coming, framing an issue in a, in a certain light. So if you're a candidate running for office and you know that people are very favorable towards you when it, it comes to kind of integrity, you're going to try to really focus on integrity and, and try to get people to really think about integrity. Um, if you're a candidate running for office 
Um, and you know that, you know, you know, immigration is really the issue where you're going to win key support. You're going to really try to emphasize immigration issues. So a lot of political communication and campaigns, um, is really trying to kind of set the agenda or, or frame the way that people think about the issue. Um, so right. So in the abortion, abortion referenda, um, you know, a lot of the communications, you know, weren't, weren't really about kind of what is your belief about when life begins, but rather, should we be considering the the rights of 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 of, um, of the the mother in, in terms of um, their reproductive rights, or should we be kind of thinking about the the, the fetus and kind of those rights? Um, and you know, I, I you know clearly one of those messages seemed to have won even in states where I think most of the voters are are pro life. Um, and so I, I I think a lot of you know a lot of commu- political communication involves those kinds of messages often in campaigns um, for one side or another. And, you know, campaigns have become somewhat of a permanent fixture. Um, You know, I think um, candidate-based campaigns, you know, I think if you go back historically, um, the campaigns, there was a campaign season, which, you know, was, you know, a few months before election day. And I I think over time, there's kind of been an evolution of, of media and expectations so that you're kind of in a constant campaign mode. And so, it's kind of an ongoing process. And then, of course, you know, there are other sorts of political communications and kind of in that sense, the scope of political communication has probably widened over time. And let, let me clarify what I mean by that. You know, I think the best example of that might be what people call political consumerism, um, which is basically people making political statements with their consumer decisions. Um, so they might, you know, boycott going to a certain establishments, you know, probably the most discussed one would be boycotting like Chick-fil-A because you you disagree with their political outlook or the, the, the kind of donations that the owners of that restaurant um, give. Um, but, you know, other examples are people boycotting um, Nike because they don't like the labor practices that they're endorsing. Um, you know, the flip side of that is what's called boycotting, which is you buy particular products um, because you think that they are you know, supporting a political agenda that, that you like. And so, you know, I think we just saw a very good example of that, right? With, I think it was Bush Beer um, put out a, an ad with a, a transgender influencer um, and their sales plummeted. And so you basically had people who, you know, found that offensive, no longer buying that beer. And then on the flip side, you kind of saw um, people who found that, you know, very progressive and, and kind of, in, you know, affirming we're suddenly buying that beer. Um, so you, f- you find these companies um, are suddenly finding themselves as political actors um, as well. And in that sense, that's one way in which I think political communication has, has broadened. Um, companies, I, I think, have a hard time stepping aside from some of the especially cultural issues that have been politicized over time. And so in that sense, that's another form of political communication when, when companies are, are making particular statements and of course, you, you see this all the time with companies making environmental statements are probably the most common that we see. And as soon as they start doing that, they're, they're, they're entering the political fray um, knowingly in, the, in that case. Um, and, you know, the other area is, is just, you know, um, science, which, which has certainly politicized over time as well. Um, you know, I think if you go back in time, you know, there's always been obviously political debates about science. You can go back to the evolution debates and so on and so forth. But I think scientific issues have polarized more along partisan lines than they used to be. And so you kind of even see something like trust in science, um, which used to be kind of ebbed and flowed, but you didn't necessarily see a partisan divide that you see today um, as much. And, and so 
you know, there's so you have discussions about scientific issues, including right recently there's a you know Republican congressperson who was taking out uh, asking for information about people who study misinformation, and so you know that that's a case where there are social scientists who are studying misinformation, and even doing that has become a politicized issue, and so you know that's another domain where I think politics have has kind of seeped into the communication environment, and so you end up having political contexts in areas where you didn't used to. Um, so, you know, coming back to your original question, kind of what does political communication look like? I, I think you can think about it kind of as the traditional election campaign where, again, I think a lot of it is kind of trying to set the, the, the scope of the conflict or the agenda on which people are focused. But then it kind of varies into kind of campaigns for products, um, um, scientific debates. And in, in that sense, I think the kind of the domain of politics has expanded somewhat into more social settings um, than it used to be, um, which, you know, is a, is kind of an interesting development in and of itself. And, and a lot of people don't see that as a positive development. <laughs> yeah. It seems like more and more of our opinions are political opinions, right? It's kind of what you're saying, right? Like it's, it's touching all, all these corners of our mind that it hadn't been before. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, and it's an interesting question, you know, I, I kind of, portrayed it as, as, as kind of, well, politics have seeped into these domains. Um, and that's, that's probably part of it. But another part of it is the, at least in, in the U S but other countries as well, the socialization patterns have been changing over time. And so, right. When you get the cohort who's coming to political age right now, and by political age, you know, I think research suggests that most people form you know, fairly robust, um, enduring political identities by their, you know, late teens, early twenties, um, which certainly can change, but, um, a lot of change kind of comes between those ages of 18 and 23, 24. And after that changes is less likely all those constant. Those people are, are quite different than prior cohorts, um, insofar as they actually seem more polarized, um, um, kind of more, likely to kind of see things through a political lens. Um, and it's, it's not, it's not particularly surprising, right? Because if they were socialized during a period where the domain of politics was broader and there was more partisan bickering, um, then that's the lens through which they're going to see politics. And so, you know, you kind of have politics seeping into other areas, but then you also have people being socialized to see politics where it might not even exist um, to begin with. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, this is a really simplistic portrayal. And obviously there was a lot more complex dynamics going on. But if you think of the COVID pandemic, um, you know, for, for a brief time when the pandemic first hit, you had plenty of social scientists kind of wondering like, oh, would this be like a 9-11 moment or, a, you know, when, when Osama bin Laden was killed moment? Um, which were moments in time where partisan divides, if you look at survey data, you know, really went down and there was a lot of unity and kind of, kind of a shared collective sense of, of, of threat, I guess, in the, in the case of COVID, um, kind of bringing people together. There was a lot of thought that that maybe that would be happening in this case. And, and, you know, some of the data from really early in COVID, you know, did show that partisan animus dropped a little bit, certainly didn't increase, um, but then, of course, you know, it subsequently became extremely politicized. And, and in this country, I think more than than most any, possibly any other country, it became a completely partisan um, issue. And, you know, I, 
I wouldn't say you, you can't do, do a kind of a, a, a direct comparison to 9-11 and, you know, say all else constant, but, you know, the, the, the contrast is, is pretty remarkable. Um, and, you know, and you can really just see that in the politics. I mean, one story that I, I like to tell, if you think about the 21st century, um, in the, in the first 20 years of the 21st century and in, in 2000, right, you had a contested election that the Supreme Court decided, um, and in a five to four vote. Um, so, right, for, for people who don't remember that, that was um, Bush for v. Gore. And there was the question of the Florida ballots where Bush had won by 537 votes. And um, the question was if they could continue counting because of the electoral irregularities on those ballots. And the Supreme Court decided five to four um, in December that they could not keep counting. And that ended the election in Bush won. And Al Gore's response was along the lines of, you know, I respect that we have to move forward. We have to, you know, you know, George Bush is now the president and um, we need to come together as a country. And then if you jump ahead to 2020, um, you know, of course, Trump is a unique entity unto himself. But, you know, not not he's also reflective of, I think, political times. And you go to the 2020 election, which also was, you know, ended up being contested, at least by by Trump. Um, and, and, and fascinatingly, um, almost to the day, the Supreme Court's final, you know, when the when the court cases were really exhausted was when the Supreme Court refused to hear um, Texas's lawsuit to throw the electoral votes from various states. Um, I think that was December 11th, 2020, whereas the Bush v. Gore was December 10th, 2000. Um, and Trump's response in, in, in to that decision was the literally polar opposite of, of Gore's. Um, Right. He he's he said this is illegitimate. Um, you know, we need to seek out the Democrats and punish them. Um, they are not should not be in charge. We can, you know, basically, in so many words, we can't come together. We need to fight, continue to fight this um, going forward. And, you know, I think that encapsulates a lot of uh, um, dynamics that have transpired over over the um, 21st century. And in that sense, coming back to the question of political communication in, in, in that way, I, I think. It has also changed quite a bit um, over the the 21st century. I, I think the nature of political communication has changed in in, in kind of quite dramatic ways um, as well. I think it's a useful way to also kind of bring up your work on framing and to anchor it. Uh, I get the sense that that you love uh, the expectancy value model <laughs> of where attitudes come from, which is great because yes. it's just so it's just this like elegant, very simple. Like technically, I get you know it poses as an equ- a mathematical equation, but it's more of a metaphor, right? For like, yes. how are we arriving at a summary judgment of things? And and so I wonder if you could just sort of start us off by describing that for folks who haven't heard about it, and and even you could tie it into like how politics has crept in as like a consideration. It strikes me that expectancy value helps us understand that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So um, so yeah, it is. A, I I think your portrayal of it as 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 kind of a heuristic model is is a, is a good one, um, rather than kind of a literal portrait of how people think. But the basic idea is that your attitude towards a object and so towards a candidate or towards a public policy is basically the, the summation of um, a bunch of considerations. And so if you're evaluating the candidate, going back to my earlier discussion, that might be kind of what you think of that candidate on immigration and what you think about that candidate in terms of their integrity. And then, you know, each consideration multiplied times the extent to which it's a positive or negative evaluation. And so if I think a given candidate is really good on immigration, 
um, they're going to get a positive value on the immigration dimension and a negative value if, if I think they don't have a lot of integrity on the integrity dimension. Um, but then you have to weight each of those dimensions. And so, um, so the, the expectancy value idea is that it is your attitude equals the summation of the weights times the values over a, a bunch of dimensions. And so the way I was portraying politics earlier was that a lot of the action is, is around the weights. Um, and so instead of trying to change people's perception of whether you have an immigration stance that's favorable or unfavorable to them, um, or if you're a high integrity or a low integrity individual, it's more about what should I care about more, immigration or integrity, um, when I'm making this decision. Um, and part of that is, is, is kind of this thought that it's, it's, easier to kind of change the weights perhaps because there's you know two two things at least one is at least when it comes to candidates um you're not running away from anything right if you have an immigration record it's kind of hard to suddenly reconfigure i mean certainly politicians try um but it's harder to do um because you have opponents who are waiting to to point out inconsistencies and so um you know which is why candidates sometimes are ambiguous because they're afraid of that and 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 secondly individuals in making it in making kind of forming their attitudes aren't going to necessarily have really ensconced in, in, in weights in their mind right when you're coming to an election you might think that something is particularly salient more immigration is more salient than something else but it might not be that hard to convince you that you know actually integrity is probably the more important dimension in this context there might be more contextual possibilities in, in changing the weight values and so i think Political scientists, although they, they didn't put it in this way, um, but, you know, going back even to the, you know, the first, one of the first books on voting, micro level voting behavior, which was around the 1948 election, really talked about politics and campaigns being about changing those weight values. And so, right, that, the, in the 1948 election, which was the famous Dewey and Truman election, where Truman kind of won in an upset. And the story is that he basically changed the weights on what voters were focused on away from international affairs and personality and towards socioeconomic issues. And, and that's how he upset Dewey. Um, and so this idea that a lot of politics is about changing those weights has been around for, a, for quite some time. So, so in that case, it's sort of like someone saying, like, listen, I, I can't convince you that my stance on immigration is great. What I can do is get you to frame this decision as a decision about integrity, right? Or however the configuration was. So I'm not changing the, like what the facts that are written down on paper. I'm just sort of focusing you on one and saying like, ultimately your call is about this dimension. And it's what the Chick-fil-A example made me think of this too, is like, you think ordinarily my attitude toward Chick-fil-A should be based on my beliefs about its quality of service, about the product, yeah. about the taste, about efficiency, about the price. And now there's this other thing, inter the political values of the people who run the place, that now you go like, ah, I can now frame your consumer behavior in terms of politics, where I don't have to, right? Like someone else could come along and say, no, this is just about to, this is ridiculous, right? It's about who has the best sandwich on the market. Uh, and those are ways of saying no one's contesting the facts, but we're calling to you to reweight which piece of this equation matters more to you. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's a that's a great example of, of how that would work and how that would be some a, a domain where political considerations have expanded. Um, and insofar as, uh, you know, in that domain of consumerism, um, we often, you know, 
our consumers in in groups. And there is evidence that our our kind of social networks have become more homogenous over time, politically speaking. So in that sense, there could be added political pressure um, to make certain consumer decisions because you're afraid of of kind of the social sanctions or you know you're seeking social affirmation more and more than you used to, um, either in person or, or via um, kind of social media. And so in that sense, um, you know, the visibility of consumer decisions might might even increase the, the extent to which you, the political dimension becomes relevant. And then, of course, as I mentioned, a lot of companies now are embracing this and, and you know, openly kind of making a political calculation on, on kind of where to stand um, on particular issues, given their their market. Um, marketplace. And so there's actually a kind of emergent literature in political science, which, which is kind of talks about calls called private politics, um, which is talking about how regulation of the marketplace doesn't occur via government, but it occurs via consumers who are kind of making choices. Um, and, and, you know, they're going to either boycott or boycott certain firms depending on their minimum wage practices. And so firms then Kind of adjust their minimum wage in anticipation of consumer reaction and so you're getting kind of the regulation of these things within the marketplace rather than um, through politics um, which you know economists would like for the efficiency <laughs> aspect of it but um you know certainly as a downside in in so far as you know you're, you're putting a lot of weight on the market um to kind of regulate kind of a public good in, in some sense so we're we're kind of dancing around this idea of framing, and because when I think of framing messages, you're the guy, as far as I'm concerned. You're the you're the name that comes to mind, and so I'm in a unique position to get to ask you about how framing works and what it is. And so, like in general, if we just ask, like, what is a frame? Like, what do we mean that I can frame this issue as a communicator in a particular way? Like we've we've basically said what that is, but I'm going to throw it back to you. Like, what what does sure. that mean exactly? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, you know, it was a difficult term actually early in, in my career to figure out because, you know, it's a, 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 a term that's used a lot um, throughout the social sciences. But, it, you know, I think, you know, the way I think about it is a frame is in essence, a there's a frame in a communication, which is basically suggesting or arguing that you should put kind of weight on this or not on this. And so you should you know, in deciding whether or not to eat at Chick-fil-A, you should weight the quality of their chicken sandwiches, um, and you should give very little consideration to their owner's um, political stances. Um, so I would really emphasize, you know, this is a great sandwich, um, or, you know, who cares what their political political donations their owners are, are, are making. And so then that way I'd be kind of framing by altering, suggesting the weights that you should put on the considerations in making a choice. And then that in turn affects those weights, which is kind of the frames that people have in their head. Um, and so you can think of frames in communication, which are the types of communications that are targeted to alter the weights that people have in their their minds. And so in practice, I, so I, I completely am with you that this term has run amok. And people will talk about framing and mean 30 different things. And, and the one thing that sometimes is hard to distinguish is whether frames are loaded up with the content of the message itself. So like if I communicate frame A and frame B, am I conveying the same message, 
but putting two different bows on it? Or am I truly conveying two different messages? Like the speech I'm giving that is frame A is a different speech than the speech that is frame B. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's been a lot of confusion around that because of the way people use the term persuasion as well. Um, and, and, you know, whether persuasion is simply kind of in it, in it, evaluation along a specific dimension or not, right? Whether or not you really like the chicken sandwich or not, if, if that's what you're going to focus on. I guess to me, it, it, it's it's a slippery enough slope that I, I think as soon as you introduce in a communication, the way that one should weight something, there's content in that communication. Um, and so, you know, I, so I guess I would say that there is content to frames, but it, it's kind of, content in terms of the salience of, of things rather than the kind of the evaluative nature of, of, of things. Um, I think part of the confusion, uh, and stop me if I get kind of too, too far, far afield, right, is um, the term framing was used um, in a different way in some sense by, um, you know, behavioral economists who talk about valence framing, which is where you have you say something that's objectively equivalent, but in two different ways. So you might say, you know, if you're talking about the chicken sandwich, you might say it's, you know, 10% fat or it's 90% fat free, um, which is the equivalent thing, but you're saying it in two different ways. So therefore somebody might say, well, the content is, is, is unchanged. But even in that case, it's still a little bit unclear to me if the content is unchanged because you're kind of, you'd have to be really sure that in somebody's mind that um, fat free and fat, um, that people really do see those, even though I know logically they are the same. Um, I don't know if people process them, um, in the same way, if they're, they're attaching kind of different meanings to them. You know, if we, if we all thought so logically, things would be a lot more straightforward. Um, and so I think that's, that's part of where the confusion comes from. Um, I just, I, I think it's hard to, to argue, especially in political contexts away from that kind of valence framing that there isn't content involved when you're saying, you know, you should really see this presidential campaign about, you know, infrastructure um, instead of electoral integrity. You know, that that's content of, you know, this is how you should view the world right now. Um, it's hard for me to think that's not content. The, the, the spirit of the question also is coming from, so I do a lot of, of work on moral rhetoric and moral frames yes, or moral yes, arguments. Of course. And, you know, you get into this murky domain where we manipulate the content of a message, right? I say, I'm either going to present moral arguments in favor of this thing, or I'm going to present some other kind of argument in favor of it. And it's like, well, am I, am I using a moral frame? If I'm using substantively different arguments, some reviewers have been like, you can't call this framing because you, you are making different points. This message makes different points than this message. And I think sometimes there's a sense that framing is just the color of the wrapping paper around the presence. Whereas others are like, no, it's a different present. <laughs> like it's a different thing entirely. And that's where it's it's always unclear. Like, I think you're right. The Kahneman and Traversky work is so like it's elegant <laughs> because I'm not actually saying anything different. I'm just presenting it differently. But I think once you start getting into like actual rhetoric <laughs> in the world, yeah. I don't really know how you do it without actually saying different things and making different points. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, we're on the same you know, I, I, I agree with that. And, you know, I think kind of the moral framing work, um, such as, such as your, your work, which is, which I love, um, is really, to me, you're kind of, people have various different moral values and you're introducing, those are 
kind of dimensions on which people should view the particular outcome, um, right? You know, if it's a abortion or immigration or environmental issues, um, you know, as soon as you invoke a moral frame, you are then kind of getting, inducing people to kind of take a moral lens to an issue that they might not otherwise have taken, right? So like on environmental issues, of course, you know, the modal person might not think of that as an issue of sanctity, but, you know, as soon as you introduce that and kind of that's, that's content of how you should see the environment and it's appealing to a, a moral foundation. And so that's, that's going to alter the way they're viewing the environment. I suppose part of the dilemma too is like, does the audience already have the consideration in place for me to shine a light on it? In which case it's just nice, clean framing. I just go think about this as a moral issue and everyone goes, I know exactly what you mean. But other times you go, well, I've never thought of it as a moral issue. How could it be a moral issue? And now as a communicator, I have to explain to you why you could consider this an immoral or moral thing to do. And that takes informing, but informing along that particular dimension. So I guess maybe that's the distinction, right? Like the frame, strictly speaking, is just orienting your attention in one area, but then yeah. the success of that depends on whether you're ready to go <laughs> or I need to spell it out for you. Yeah, I mean, I think you're getting at a, a, a definite psychological tension that seems to come up in that literature. And and I guess my feeling is there's always, even though I, I earlier kind of talked about persuasion as really just on the evaluative dimension, I wasn't myself endorsing that view of persuasion necessarily. I was kind of trying to articulate why I think sometimes there's confusion about whether what persuasion is, um, which hopefully will make sense as I now kind of answer your the issue you brought address the issue you brought up, which is, I mean, I I think you have to have the consideration at some level available in your mind, um, insofar as you have to have a moral right. If you don't know what sanctity is, um, then you're going to fail. Um, so I I think there does have to be a starting point, and then I think psychologically it becomes, you know. Is that moral, in this case, let's go with sanctity in the environment, is that already an accessible consideration um, as you evaluate the environment and basically you're just changing how applicable it is and kind of how much weight you're adding to it in that evaluation, in which case um, one could say there's not content in that. But I think that's a pretty slippery slope because as soon as you're trying to get somebody to change the weight, you might end up making an argument. I know a lot of frames don't. They might just say like, oh, this is a sanctity issue. Um, but then if you say it's a sanctity issue because, you know, I don't know if that kind of fundamentally changes that you're using a moral frame. Um, it's a sanctity issue because the environment was God-given. Is that suddenly different than if you just said it was a sanctity issue? It's a different argument, but I, I think we're starting to get pretty slippery I think the ultimate goal is you're trying to change the weight you're giving to the consideration of sanctity um, and how you go about doing it. You might impose different content and different arguments, um, but I, I, I guess I think that's all kind of a, a framing technique. And then if we want to call, you know, persuasion, you can think of it as kind of a like little p persuasion as, you know, only do you think the environment should be protected when you think about it in terms of sanctity or not, um, or kind of big p persuasion which is kind of any change in the evaluation of the object. Um, and, in, you know, I, I think persuasion is a pretty big tent. So I, I think of, of kind of framing as we've been discussing it as, as one technique towards altering, a, you know, somebody's view towards an object. Um, 
that that's great. That's very helpful. <laughs> and it also transitions nicely into sort of capital P persuasion. What is it? How does it work? And thinking that you've been doing about that uh, recently. So uh, I forget what year. A couple of years ago, you, you have this, what's it called? Generalizing persuasion framework. Yes, getting yes, it right? yes. Uh, that <laughs> reads as though you're sitting there with a pile of persuasion studies going, what, what, what do we do with all this? Uh, like, how, how do we make sense of this? How can we give order to this? Um, and so you present a way in which we can think methodically about how persuasion works and the factors that are supposed to matter. So I'm curious, like, when did that bug get in your brain that you had to be like, uh, there's some, something's off here. Like, a, there's a problem that needs solving. I, I, I guess... Um... You know, I when I made that that kind of I'm gonna kind of jump back and then jump way ahead. But when I made that switch um, in graduate school that I mentioned at the beginning of our, our conversation, the first thing that I I, I did, you know, thanks I, I had a an excellent doctoral advisor, um, Skip Lupia, who had been trained as a a game theorist, and he was you know at that at that point he was not even a tenured professor, um, and he was kind of coming wanting to learn. He was kind of did formal models of communication kind of simultaneous. We kind of both then suddenly were interested in learning a lot about persuasion. And so we let, read a lot of persuasion books and literature um, and, you know, a lot of the process models and, and you know, the elab elaboration likelihood model obviously was the defining model and, you know, goes a long way towards doing a lot of work in explaining how persuasion works. Hi, friends. Uh, just interrupting here uh, very quickly. Jamie brings up this thing called the elaboration likelihood model of persuasion. And I, I feel like I need to give you a little bit of context for it. We sort of gloss over it a little bit because Jamie and I were talking about it off mic before things uh, got rolling. Um, but he does talk about it in a handful of ways throughout our conversation. So I want to make sure you have some background for it. And, and listen, I promise a whole episode about the elaboration likelihood model of persuasion is coming on on this podcast. It is a model of persuasion I became very familiar with in graduate school, and so I feel like I owe it to myself to to finally release an episode on it. In any case, very quick crash course. The key premise of the ELM, the Elaboration Likelihood Model, is just that when we approach persuasive messages, we can either think very carefully about them and process every last uh, detail of the arguments inside of them, or we could kind of kick back and let them wash over us, picking up on only the barest details that can sway us in one direction or the other. Critically, and this is what you're going to need to know for something that Jamie mentions later, whether we engage with a message in one way or another depends on two things. It depends on our motivation or our willingness to spend a lot of time thinking about the nuts and bolts of a message. And it also depends on our ability to do so. Like, is my brain even rested enough to spend all this energy getting to the bottom of whether your argument makes sense or not? So very bare bones. If I'm motivated and I'm able to think very carefully about what you have to say, I am likely to build my opinion about what you're talking about based on the arguments that you're making to me. If I'm not that interested or able to think very carefully, Instead, the opinion I come away with is more about the kind of superficial features of the message that you're telling me. Okay, that'll have to do for now. <laughs> Let's get back to my conversation with Jamie. I, I think kind of two things, though, kind of fast forward, you know, through my career is one thing was the model um, 
is is very useful in understanding political communication and is not applied nearly as much as it should in the political domain. It is it is drawn on, um, but but you know, not as much as say like the consumer domain or the health domain, as far as I can tell. And so part of that just confused me. I didn't know if that was because political scientists weren't reading reading this work or if um, you know, the psychologists can only kind of go into so many domains to apply the model. And I, I think it occurred to me that part of the issue was that political scientists kind of are thinking more about kind of different elements of kind of the context and the types of messages that are being sent and various different outcomes more so than is really the concern of the elaboration likelihood model. Um, so it's not a critique of the model. Um, it's just that that model is explaining the psychology of how persuasion works. And it, 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 it is a psychological model that should be fairly invariant across context for the psychology of it. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be different moderators and how that model works depending on the context and the outcomes and the speakers and so on and so forth, if that makes sense. So put another way, I think that model is exactly right. Um, it, would be, it would be awfully bizarre of me to say otherwise at this point, um, the, you know, given the accumulated evidence for it. The question though is, when you bring that model to a different area, I think the model itself would say it depends that there are going to be contextual circumstances that are going to lead people to elaborate more or less, right? Like if they're dealing with a political issue that's very important to them versus one that's not important to them, um, if they have a high amount of political knowledge or a low amount of political knowledge, you know, those types of, of things will affect kind of ability and motivation. And so that kind of led me to think maybe that's why political scientists haven't kind of taken that model um, as uh, used it as much as they, they might be. And so that kind of led me to think about like, well, how do we think about generalization? And, you know, straightforwardly, we think about generalization in terms of external validity. Um, and when we think about external validity, we think about classically four dimensions of external validity, you know, them being um, kind of the actors involved, um, which in a persuasion context would be a receiver and a, a speaker most straightforwardly. We think about the context, which might be a competitive context or a non-competitive context or a deliberative context. Um, we think about the stimuli, um, so that would be like the message content. Um, and we think about the outcomes, so that might be a policy position or it might be a behavior. Um, and so if you take those four dimensions, it kind of worked. It, it provided me some insight to kind of see this swath of political communication literature in political science. You can kind of like map it out, right? You can kind of see like, well, this study is not agreeing with that study, right? So you have two different studies you have these two very different views, like on the, the effects of political campaigns. In one view, you have political campaigns have these really large effects on what people think. And then you have a whole nother set of studies which say political campaigns have very little to no effect on what people think. And like, how do you make sense of that? And, you know, that's a, that's a low hanging fruit example because you make sense of them because it depends on the salience of the opinion people are forming, right? If they're forming an opinion and in an initiative over which they have very, kind of weak priors and they have very little knowledge based on it and they, you know, are not particularly kind of um, highly motivated, they're going to probably be swayed fairly easily by whatever cues they get exposed to in the environment. 
But if you're in a presidential campaign where there's a strong partisan priors and you've kind of known these candidates for years and you've kind of formed these opinions and they're pretty strong, strongly held attitudes and you're pretty motivated to kind of analyze every message, um, you're much less likely to get a campaign effect. And so I, I, I think it was just kind of kind of how you described it. You know, I had spent nearly 20 years kind of reading these series of studies on political communication and wondering, like, kind of how do these all go together because they seem so disconnected. And, you know, the answer in retrospect seems, you know, pretty easy if you're trying to think about how do you piece together something that would generalize, you kind of think about generalization. And I think the one the one downside of the framework is that it did come at the cost of, you know, there's very little in the framework about psychology. And so that would be kind of the next, you know, the framework is really, in studying persuasion, you should think about those types of, those four dimensions and kind of where does this particular study fall in those four dimensions. And that might explain why you're finding this, whereas another study on a similar communicative topic found something different. But, you know, you then need to kind of, the next step would be to like, let's think about the psychological processes that that particular configuration of variables is generating. And, you know, that was what I kind of intended to do, but it ended up getting long enough and kind of complicated enough that I, I, I didn't quite get to that that step. But that that's kind of the the, the origins of that that paper. It strikes me as a, as a useful, like the contrast with the psychological processes kinds of models where those are all about like, we don't really care what this message is. <laughs> Whatever this happens to be, it hits my eyeballs. And now I want to know what's going on to me that, that ends up having me change my mind or not. Whereas your framework is more like the grocery store of political communication of like, right. here are the things you could get and put together in this recipe of political communication. And sure, all of those things are going to have their own unique effects and, and psychological consequences and, and societal consequences. But until we know like, what are the things we need to go shopping for? It's hard to assemble all the considerations that are going to matter in a message. Does that, <laughs> I don't mean yeah, to say, you could have called it the grocery store model of persuasion, but uh, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's put it better than I could have. So yeah, that's a, that's a perfect portrait of, of kind of what I had hoped it, it to be. Um, well, we're, so one of my favorite little moments in the paper is part of the taxonomy is outcomes. Like what, what are the outcomes that we hope to change? And you talk about attitudes or opinion as like an obvious one that people have looked at for a long time. Uh but one in which lots of people have kind of woven off over the last several years been like, well, do we really care about these messages if they're changing attitudes without changing behavior, for example? And you just have this beautiful defense of studying persuasions effects on attitudes for the sake of studying persuasions effects on attitudes, irrespective of what is going on for behavior. Could you give us a taste of like, why should we still care about whether messages change minds, regardless of whether they change behavior? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's at least two reasons, and there's probably more. Um, you know, one is just from a, a political perspective, you know, and, and, and also a marketing perspective. You know, people are looking at public opinion polls. Um, you know, I, I don't think those, let me put it this way. I know there's a lot of criticism of polls. But the extent to which people are worried about them and discuss them and try to dismiss them is somewhat of an indication of their importance. And the fact that you can't just replace them with social media data per se, because I think 
people realize the limitations of using social media data, data as kind of a surveillance of kind of what a representative public would think. Um, and, you know, politicians invest an enormous amount in, in private polling. And so I, I, I think understanding attitudes from a political, and I think you could say the same thing about marketers are, are obviously market research firms do quite well. Um, and I think they're, they're usually measuring attitudes. And so in that, in that sense, um, you know, these are things, even, even if they were kind of, kind of epiphenomenal kind of in passing constructs, they're still then affecting kind of the political and the, the consumer marketplace in very consequential ways. So we probably want to understand them. And then for political perspective, it's still in line with this first comment. Um, from a normative perspective, you know, we think of, you know, one, one portrayal of how democratic politics work is that you should be reflective of the will of the people, that will being basically their attitudes. And so we certainly want to understand attitudes for, for those reasons. The other reason where I, I guess I got a little bit flippant in the, in, in the paper is, is that, you know, there is kind of a, as, as you, as you stated, there's a, kind of a, a increasing refrain where, where people will kind of say, should we just, we should just look at behavior as if those behaviors are enduring indicators of how people will act down the road. And I, as far as I know, there's very little, I mean, there certainly are habitual behaviors. But there's very little evidence that the types of behaviors people seem to be studying in the social sciences, which often amount to kind of social media statements or kind of purchasing decisions um, or things along those lines, which I'm not saying shouldn't be studied. But I don't think there's an indication that those are indicators of kind of how people then might kind of subsequently act in different situations or how they might kind of cast their vote or so on and so forth. Whereas I think attitudes, at least as classically conceived, are kind of enduring evaluations that, you know, even if you go to the, the, the reasoned action framework, um, you know, which is really all about kind of trying to understand behavior in, in some sense, right? The, the most proximate predictor is, is attitude. And so, you know, I, I, I think there's a reason to study behavior. I, I, I think people should be studying behavior, but I think it's awfully kind of arrogant to kind of be dismissing attitudes given the extent to which I, I think social scientists have provided enormous insight into how people think and feel and behave. And I think a lot of that comes from the attitude construct. And, you know, I think there needs to be a deeper appreciation of that. And we shouldn't be so fast to kind of let the availability of certain behavioral data and the challenges of, of collecting opinion data, which, you know, changes with technology suddenly kind of reverse what we what we think about those things. And then there's also a little bit kind of a, from a methodological perspective, it's, it's kind of been interesting to watch because, you know, collecting public opinion data, if you, you know, it's very easy to say that, well, the counterfactual was 30 years ago, we had, we could collect better public opinion data because non-response biases were not as bad. And, um, you know, we could invest more and get in-person interviews. And, you know, so therefore the data are of worse quality. And then you look at the behavioral data that people are using and they say, well, 20 years ago, we couldn't collect any of this. So anything is good. And so, you know, that's a, that's an apples to oranges comparison, right? Right. The, the attitude data, we shouldn't use that because it's not as good as 20 years ago. And the behavioral data we should use because 20 years ago, we didn't have any. So <laughs> anything is acceptable. Um, and so again, it's not that people shouldn't be studying that, but, but, you know, I think people need to, I think the onus, 
would be on on somebody kind of saying like attitudes are not a useful thing to to study and and I have yet to see a really compelling argument um along those lines. Well, that's a, a pretty killer way to wrap up an episode of a podcast called Opinion Science. <laughs> so, we're, we're waving the flag high. Uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk about all this stuff. I've, I've enjoyed reading your work for, for so long, and it, it was great to get uh, to talk well, to you. Well, that's super flattering. It's a very mutual feeling. So thanks. Thank you so much to Jamie Druckmann for taking the time to talk about his work. It was super fun to get into the weeds on how political persuasion works. You can check out the link in the show notes for his website and all the great work that he's done. Uh, We'll also try to leave a few links to some of the major ideas that came up today as well. Be sure to follow this podcast wherever podcasts are happening for you. Uh, OpinionSciencePodcast.com is the cool place to be, I'm told. You'll find past episodes and other goodies on there. Follow me on social media at OpinionSciPod on Twitter is still kicking, it turns out, but you can also find me other places. I share new episodes of this show, but increasingly it's just pictures from my new obsession with letterpress printing. For all my U.S. buddies, happy Thanksgiving in a few days. If you need to revisit some of the past episodes of this show on navigating conversations with people who you disagree with politically on your drive to Thanksgiving dinner, they're there for you. I've got you. Okie doke. See you in a couple weeks, everyone. For more Opinion Science, bye-bye.